Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. For the social prescribing, it's really important to tailor your suggestions to what the person likes. So then there may need to be a conversation about what do you like, what do you enjoy doing. Hi, it's Hilton Coppy with you and welcome back to Dementia in Practice, the podcast that's made by GPs for GPs and for other health professionals who want to learn more about dementia. My friends Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Steph Daly from Dementia Training Australia are with me as always. And today we're going to mix things up and I'm going to start asking questions. So Hilton, I was wondering if you'd start us off today by telling us, are you a member of any clubs or community groups? Uh, yeah, so I'm part of Lennox Head Football Club. I play soccer in, in Lennox with another bunch of old guys who should know better. And uh, it's really, it's been so fantastic uh, rejoining the soccer family as an older guy because of the connections it's given me with people in the community that I otherwise probably wouldn't have got to meet. And they're some of my best friends now through playing soccer. And let's face it, it probably keeps the sports physicians in business for you old guys and your uh, sports-related injuries. And Steph, what about you? Yeah, so I'm actually a member of um, the National Women's Council here in South Australia. And that's a really interesting group of women who meet on a monthly basis and we have, you know, stimulating conversation about issues that are affecting women. And it's a a diverse group. So um, again, people that I probably wouldn't necessarily have met through any other means but it does give you a sense of community and we do we do meet with other community groups and so I get an understanding of you know how other people are being affected by different issues and and talk about how you know we might advocate for for women's issues so you know that's another example of something that you can be really rewarding. That's great. Yeah, I'm just about to start up or in conjunction with some other farmers in the area a regenerative farming group and I guess it just shows that that importance of having your local connections and we think about when we're caring for people with dementia sometimes it can be hard for them to have some meaningful purpose because often life can be turned upside down for them fairly quickly so today we're going to be looking at the importance of perhaps connecting people living with dementia and even their carers into some um, community groups activities that can I guess put that sense of connection and purpose back into their lives and we've had the opportunity to speak with the wonderful Professor Dimity Pond. Um, I think it's even more important now having just come out of or coming out I guess of a a pandemic um, such as COVID where we've all been nestled into our houses and a lot, there's been a lot of breakdown in terms of community groups and you know loss of confidence getting out and about. So it's, it's even more important now to have a think about these things. I've just been looking at the effects of COVID on older people and especially people with dementia over the last couple of years. And uh, the articles talk uniformly about loneliness, about missing routines, feeling isolated, 
increased confusion because of not understanding why they can't go and do the things they want to do. And, you, you know, we all have felt at times like we're being driven up the wall by being stuck at home. So the idea is to link people up with those kinds of groups, not just the people with dementia, of course, but their carers as well. They can get out and mix in a, in a COVID-safe way with people who understand what it is to have dementia. And that will be very good for their mental health. Yeah, so I guess it's patients with all chronic conditions really, isn't it? And, and, and dementia more than ever, I guess, we describe dementia as a social disease because the impact is so broad. So as you said, these groups are not only for people living with dementia, but we're wanting to help support their carers who we know can be experiencing quite a lot of stress trying to um, manage on their own. So being able to provide some kind of group where, whether, whether it be separate or whether it be together, the aim would be to slow down the progression perhaps or the impact of the, the illness and reduce care or stress. So it's kind of a win-win in that way, right? Yeah. And another important thing that's really emerged um, from my reading is the issue around stigma for people with dementia. People can find out about groups which they can join and older people can do that. Uh, and the GPs often know uh, those groups too, to some extent, and the practice nurses particularly. But to know which ones are safe for someone with dementia, where they'll be accepted with their cognitive impairment, that's really important. And that is something that I think we need to start gathering that information in our local areas. It may not have to be just aimed at dementia. Of course, a dementia cafe or something is aimed at people with dementia. But it, it could be that the, the local, this particular bowling club uh, makes good allowance for people with dementia to come. Maybe they don't bowl. Maybe they just watch. And that's okay, you know, and they're still accepted as part of the group. Or it could be an art class or it could be a discussion group. So it, it needs a kind of leadership that um, accepts that some people have different ways of looking at the world due to their dementia. Hmm. And I think it's really important to recognise it's never a one-size-fits-all. And we just recently spoke to Jason Burton about wellbeing directives, um, how it's really important to know what brings meaning to people's lives so that, you know, if someone has no interest in bowls, it's not really much good probably sending to the bowls club. But if they've had an interest in art, that's where you might, you know, get bang for buck. So I guess it's having an understanding of what brings meaning to the person's life and then trying to match that with your social prescribing. Yes, Marita. And that's interesting. When we think about prescribing a medication, we don't ask what do they like. Unless they're a child, I might ask, do you, will you take a tablet or a capsule or should I get syrup? Yeah. But for the social prescribing, it's really important to tailor your suggestions to what the person likes. So then there may need to be a conversation about what do you like, what do you enjoy doing? And, you know, that brings us a little bit to that sort of patient-centredness. Uh, it's so important. This is a whole shift in healthcare policy, isn't it? It could be a shift in healthcare policy. At the moment, these other activities all exist, the local bowls club and the gym and... Uh, social groups, they already exist. 
But the idea of pulling them together and calling that social prescribing and getting the health sector more involved in linking people up with those groups, that's a change in government policy, I think, and in the right direction too. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, I guess, thinking about general practice and how it's funded and how we operate as GPs, which is often just in our room on our own with the patients and the, the carers. And we're often not so clued into what's going on out there in the, the big wide world. I mean, I know where I work, I'm part of a maternal and child health network group, which is great because I get to know who's who's who around there and who the peds are and who the physios are who are good with, you know, particular issues, who the OTs are. But I don't have that network, interestingly, in in aged care, but it's really giving me the impetus to go, okay, we've got to start finding out what's out there. And I guess that's something that you can do in conjunction with your practice manager and your practice nurse, or even it could be a, a good little project for, you know, a registrar who comes to your practice. Yes, I I completely agree with that. So I think the primary health network may have perhaps more knowledge about local services than we realise. And uh, if we actually went into health pathways, it's possible that in our local area health pathways will list. It's a question of going into health pathways, and I know that we don't all do that, and I certainly only do it Mm. when I'm desperate. So, but but I might not think of that as social prescribing, but I think that's one possibility. I wonder if they have social prescribing on health pathways. There's another good task. We can all go away and check our health pathways and see if there is any option there for social prescribing. Because if there isn't, I think uh, we can we can suggest a new job for one of the health pathways writers. Yes. Well, I know that mm. some do. The Hunter New England Health Pathways does. Um, wow. So uh, I, I can say that because I'm honorary professor of general practice at Newcastle, so I can say that. Uh, so they're great. Okay. I know that they don't all do it, or it might be split up and not called social prescribing. It might be in different mm. sections. Consider referral to, you know, like for falls, you know, to this exercise place, which might also be mm-hmm. suitable. Marita, thanks for talking with Dimity about this issue of social prescribing. And as one of my other hats is as a Health Pathways clinical editor, I feel like there's a job that's come my way as a result of that. We are actually trying to develop a pathway for social support for older people. So uh, very much along those lines. Um, there was, again, like always, a lot in that um, in that interview. Steph, um, Dimity spoke a little bit about the stigma of dementia and how that may be a barrier for people engaging in social activities. I know you've spoken a little in the past about the cultural groups within your community. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about cultural safety for people with dementia who come from culturally and linguistically diverse groups. Yeah, so, I mean, I can only speak from the experience I've had here in Adelaide, but certainly... 
we do have a number of groups which are specific for different cultural and linguistically diverse backgrounds. So for one example is there's a social group uh, specifically for the Italian speaking population. And the importance there is that all of the people who are working within that group speak Italian as a first language or at least fluent Italian so they can converse with the people who are attending that session and it's and it is a, a form of social prescribing um, that is actually recommended through um, the aged care assessment team and people will go there and engage in um, various activities. It's not specific for people living with dementia but the people who work there are trained to support people who have cognitive impairment. You know it means that people feel comfortable in that environment, knowing that they can speak the language and also have a cultural connection to the people around them. So I think, you know, again, social prescribing is all about finding out about the person in front of you, their interests and trying to provide opportunities for people to engage in social connectedness that they will find a supportive and interesting environment but that sometimes you have to push people out of their comfort zone a little bit but it is about being person-centered. And one of the things that people living with dementia often speak about is that loss of a sense of identity and I would imagine providing them with a community where they can speak their first language would help them to either retain or regain that sense of identity. Uh, if it's if it's done in a, a inappropriate way, and talking about identity, Marita, I was really taken by Dimity's comment that we should be or could be. I hate the word should. We could be asking people the question, "What do you like doing?" You know, like to find out a little bit more about them and their identity. And I'm just wondering when you have the opportunity to ask your patients what they like, what impact that does that have on you as a doctor talking with people about what they enjoy or what they like as opposed to the usual thing, which is like all their problems and worries and aches and pains? Yeah, it's really nice, actually. It um, reminds me of one of my patients who every time I go and, and get her from the waiting room um, and I say, oh, how are you going today? And she goes, oh, I know good. I know good. And when I get her into the room, we start exploring this concept of being no good. She is amazing. You know, she's 85 and she still does her own garden, grows her own veggies. She still cooks her own meals. She still cooks for her children, in fact. And she never stops. You know, she's incredible. And, and learning that about her, if I, if I sort of just went into the no good and tell me why you're no good, I'd be, yeah, so focused on the, the negative, but, you know, I'd, I'd just say to her now, oh, you're amazing, you know. There's nothing that's no good about you. You're just amazing and she has a good laugh. But it does give me a really good insight and understanding into, into what she enjoys. So certainly doing that more and more on a regular basis, and, I'm, and I'd have to say that certainly was prompted by um, Jason Burton and his discussion about the importance of getting to know what's important to our patients is really lovely. And it does turn the consult around to to something pleasurable. And we were talking about this the other day, actually, with a colleague who said something about what she does is when she has a positive encounter in general practice, she writes it down 
And at the end of the day, she looks back on her positive encounters because, you know, it can be such a difficult and draining job. And by looking back over her positive encounters for the day, she actually goes, actually, it was a pretty good day. And I thought that was really important. So it's probably equally beneficial for us as the GPs to, to focus in on, on some of that as it is for our patients. It does slow you down, though. Well, maybe. I'm not convinced. Yeah, okay. Because I think that by my experience has been when I find out people's strengths, it makes my job a lot easier mm. because they might say, well, when I do... X, Y, and Z, I feel mm. so much better. Mm. And I can just reflect that back and say, so when you do exercise, you feel better. What do you think you might like to do now? Mm. And so it's like this beautiful thing I've spoken about before, how the patient does the work while the doctor gets paid. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it certainly makes my day go better. And if we were videoing this interview and we could play it back to you, you would be able to see, Marita, the smile on your face mm -hmm. that came when you were thinking about that woman. And, and, you know, if we can smile as we're doing our work, I, I think it's a really, it's a nice thing. And, and focusing more on the person than the problem has been something that's been helpful for me. But let's get away from my philosophical musings and let's hear a little more what Dimity has to say about this. I'm actually thinking of uh, setting up a, a once a month uh, 45 to 49 year old health assessment clinic uh, for me and the practice nurse to run uh, because that's already a, an item under the Medicare. It is, that's right. Underutilized item number, I suspect. Yes, only 6% of people in the, that age group get a health assessment. So, and that would be an ideal place to look at cardiovascular risk factors, smoking, alcohol, depression, hearing. All those modifiable risk factors. Yes, that's exactly right. And I've spoken to a few patients. We've got a little informal patient advisory group at our practice, and they've gone, is there really a health assessment between 45 and 49? I didn't know about that. Why wasn't I invited? You know? So, yeah. So, and uh, the GPs have said, oh, it's just COVID. We used to do a few, and then we kind of just let it slip because we got so busy. But I think now... Yeah. Now is the time because so many people have also missed out on their assessments during COVID. And we're also not doing pap smears as frequently as we used to because they've turned into cervical screening tests and only happen once every five years. And so we That's missed right. out on some That's of right. those opportunities to do a, an assessment on our middle-aged patients. So I, yeah. think, I think it would be good to do this. I often tell my patients that it's the the last, the only one they get actually until they're over 75, so we might as well do it now. And it is yes, a great sure. opportunity to look at what particular risk factors they might have. And now, um, again, it's going to be looking at what sort of social prescribing we can put in place. And I think there's um, been a very recent movement that follows on from the UK with establishing park runs associated with general practice. So that's a perfect example of social prescribing, setting up a park yes. run that's kind of in conjunction with general practice. So I think it's a real fantastic thing that the college is certainly embracing it because I think there's now a special interest group, isn't there, in social prescribing? Yeah. So anyone who's interested in, um, you know, looking at a different way that we can start approaching our work, not just for patients um, living with dementia, but for all our patients, they could jump onto the college and um, look 
to see if they'd be interested in joining uh, the social prescribing special interest group. I have got another um, potential system way of addressing it too, Marita. That comes out of uh, a discussion I had with one of my colleagues at work at uh, 75 plus health assessments. Because someone said to me, so you'd do a care plan after a 75 plus health assessment, wouldn't you? And I said, no, a care plan's different. And my colleague said, oh, no, I do a care plan for the podiatrist. And then we said, well, it's true that the care plan allows for a Medicare refund for allied health um, yeah. practitioners. It could be part of social prescribing, but it often is the podiatrist. But there's no reason why a care plan couldn't have some social prescribing goals at the bottom of it that are separate from anything to do with a Medicare rebate. Yeah, I think that's a great idea and it just brings it to the forefront, you know, prompts you to remember to have a think about it, see what's out there. And um, it's something that's sort of a little bit uplifting also, you know. It's something that can be a positive way to be working and feeling like you you are making a bit of a difference. I was just going to ask, Dimity, the concept of a dementia-friendly community, is that also a form of social prescribing? Yeah, I think that that's very true. And our local primary health network has set up a community hub uh, and we, we've been sort of advocating for social prescribing through the primary health network. And we said, oh, what's that? And they said, well, you know, we've got community organisations. We've got a dozen of them so far. It's a virtual hub uh, and they have meetings and, and they have ways of getting information about themselves out there and they're considering linking in with the dementia-friendly community initiative that's happening in our area too. So the PHN is in an ideal position to bring all those initiatives together, I think. So I think we need a little bit to be a bit proactive about that too mm-hmm. with our local PHN if they've got the capacity to do that. It was interesting hearing Dimity talking about dementia-friendly community organisations because, Steph, I know you've got some interest in dementia-friendly general practices. I wonder if you could talk a little about what you've done to make your practices dementia-friendly as possible. Yeah, so I think it comes back to that thing about making everybody aware of what it's like to to have dementia and and being inclusive of people. So, I mean, it can be for all manner of different conditions. It doesn't have to be specific for dementia, but the more that you highlight to the population in general, which I would see as the practice, my practice population being reception nurses, everyone who's working in it, what the kinds of things that people with living with dementia might struggle with about the environment, then um, perhaps people will approach people living with dementia in a more a kind and um, respectful way. And I think that goes back to that thing about having environments where people feel safe and secure and they don't feel like people are going to be staring at them or picking them up on the fact that they are repeating themselves and and so you you know having a dementia friendly uh, community of which actually in Adelaide we do have one in the Adelaide Hills there's a whole community uh, you know a, a little um 
region, I guess, that has been labelled as dementia friendly. That means that all of the businesses in that area have had some education about dementia. And that really impacts the way that people feel um, when they're you know, going about their business in that community. That's unreal. Maybe we should do an episode there and uh, go around and interview some people. I think that would be super yeah. interesting. Oh, there's more than one. In fact, there's I think there's one in New South Wales as well. There's a few. If you go onto Dementia Australia's website, you can Google dementia-friendly communities and it comes up with all the different ones. I'd like an excuse to come to Adelaide, Steph. <laughs> You'd be welcome anytime. The other thing I was interested in, Marita, was the idea about the 45 to 40 nine-year-old health check that's funded through Medicare um, for our listeners who aren't GPs. And I was, I was really wondering, what do you think might happen if we start as GPs started doing social prescribing for people in midlife rather than waiting until they're older? What difference do you think that might make? Well, I think um, a huge difference. I mean, that's really our only chance to really intervene in the course of a lot of chronic illness and particularly for women, you know, always getting back to the women's health plug. But we know women live for longer but often live with poorer um, health with more chronic disease. So the 45 to 49 year health assessment I see just as a golden opportunity to really educate patients about the changes that they can make and then incorporating social prescribing into that. Um, we've heard from Sharon the, the idea of perhaps prescribing a wake-up time. We've heard about that. Um, we've heard today about Park Run um, and I think there's going to be more and more opportunity to address particularly the 12, or if we include sleep, 13 modifiable risk factors um, for dementia. And a lot of those risk factors are amenable to social prescribing. So I think it's, you know, a yeah, great opportunity. Um, and again, potentially a more uplifting way to work with our patients, a more positive frame to, to work with our patients than always focusing on the problems, getting in early and preventing the problems. Steph, I know that you're interested in this concept of prevention and, and we've spoken quite a bit about risk factor reduction or risk factor management in dementia, both being a preventative activity as well as a management or treatment activity. And I'm interested in your thoughts around how we might use social prescribing to cover both those elements, both prevention and also treatment. Well, I mean, as you know, I'm from England and we, well, UK, and we do things um, sometimes a little bit before Australia. So we've been doing social prescribing for quite some time. And one of the things that we have established in the UK, which has now just started here with a collaboration with the Royal College, is uh, park run practices. Now, park run sounds a bit intimidating when you first hear about it because, you know, you think, well, I don't, I can't run. But actually, the purpose of Parkrun is to get people moving for free. And you can do what you want in that time. Like you don't have to run, you can walk. And uh, this is for people of all ages. And I think it's a, real, a really good demonstration of how you can use social prescribing for you know, helping people to engage in physical activity. But not only is it physical activity, because the people who support Parkrun are a lot of volunteers and often 
actually when I do park run I notice that the people who are doing the wayfinding might be perhaps more elderly population who perhaps couldn't walk five kilometres but they are happy to engage in the social connectedness and support of such a community and so that's a demonstration of how a group of people get together but support each other in many different ways and the evidence shows that not only is it beneficial for people's mental health but it also helps to reduce things like blood pressure and um uh, there was a study done in the UK back in 2018 that actually showed that they surveyed a group of GPs and they found that the use of social prescribing actually reduced workload by an average of 28%. So um, make helping people to engage um, in these other practices will be beneficial for us as practitioners. Gosh, where do we join up then? <laughs> well, there's, it, yeah, it's easy. I mean... Parkrun's just one example. I think the benefit of Parkrun is that the RACGP are behind it and so there's a collaboration there which makes it a little bit easier. And then I think the broader question is it's not enough to say, you know, go away and join this group. Some people will, particularly people with dementia, will naturally have an apathy or a, a lack of confidence to want to go and join a group. So it's about how do you engage people in that activity? You know, it's not as with all things, it's not just giving people a piece of paper and say, off you go. It's it's having a buddy system or someone that you, a named person that they go and uh, meet at so that, you know, you can reassure people that it is going to be a safe environment for them. But I think it, it really has value. On our next episode of Dementia in Practice, Steph, you're going to bring us a fantastic conversation you had with Dr. Eddie Strivens, who works with people living with dementia in the Torres Strait and far north Queensland. And yes, yeah, it was so interesting talking to Eddie and we're going to get some really fascinating insights about the difference between the population up there in, in far north Queensland and, um, you know, wider Australian populations. But in the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website dta.com.au forward slash GP or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. And don't forget to tell your colleagues or friends about this podcast and leave us a nice glowing review if you listen in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening today. See you next time. If you're a person living with dementia, or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500, or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia, which is funded by the Australian Government.